0: Welcome everyone. My name is Jasmine. I'm a recent pharmacy graduate from the University of Alberta and a CASA Youth Council member. Thank you all for attending our Dr. Roger Bland lecture series on improving child and youth mental health presented by CASA Child Adolescent and Family Mental Health along with their partners, the Institute of Health Economics, the University of Alberta Department of Psychiatry, the Edmonton Public School Board, and the Alberta Alliance on Mental Illness and Mental Health. If you would like to support CASA and their work with infants, children, youth and families, you can text CASA to 3939 for information on how to donate. We are so appreciative of all donations. We want to continue offering these events and we like to continue having them free of charge and supporting CASA Foundation is a great way to do that. We will also have volunteers in the lobby at the end of our session today who will be accepting cash cash donations or pledge cards if you'd like a tax receipt. The lecture today is presented by the CASA Youth Council, also known as the CYC, and I'd like to thank CASA and our CYC facilitator, Stephanie, for helping organize this event. I'd like to begin. I'd like to begin by acknowledging that we are on Treaty 6 territory, a traditional meeting ground, gathering place, and traveling route to the Cree, Soto, Blackfoot, Métis, Dene, and Nakota Sioux. Just a quick housekeeping note, the washrooms are located just downstairs and to the left, partway down the archway. Also, before we get started, I want to mention that this lecture may address the following sensitive topics, including sexual assault, psychoses, self-harm, suicidality, gender dysphoria, PTSD, relationships, and hospitalization. Our hope is for everyone to feel safe and we encourage you to place your well-being first and foremost and to reach out if needed to a trusted family member, friend, or professional for support. As well, the stories and perspectives that are shared today reflect those of each individual and their personal experiences. Our intent is to inform those in the audience to tell our unique stories honestly and without generalizations rather than providing clinical or professional advice. This evening we are very excited to bring you a lecture focused on the youth perspective on mental health. We'll be beginning our lecture today by providing some background about the Youth Council, some of the initiatives that the Council is involved with, and future community projects that we are working towards. This will be followed by a panel discussion with five youth with lived experience, and after this there will be an opportunity for the audience to ask our panelists some questions. Much like the past lectures, our goal is to spark a meaningful discussion about youth mental health and what steps we can all take to support youth, raise awareness and promote positive change in our day-to-day interactions with those living with mental illness. We encourage our attendees today to engage with us on social media, on Facebook and Instagram at CASA Youth Council and follow along with the hashtag CYCTalks. Please now welcome our keynote speakers for today who are also CASA Youth Council members Ella and Yasmin.
1: Uh, thank you, Jasmine, so much for that wonderful introduction. Hello, everybody. My name is Jasmine. I am 24 years old. I graduated from the University of Alberta um, with a psychology degree, and I now work as a psychological assistant at Inner City High School. I'm also a general CASA Youth Council member. Hi, I'm Ella. Hi, I'm, Ella. I'm
2: 17. Hello. Okay. <laughs> Hi, I'm Ella. I'm 17, and I'm graduating from Skoda in the spring. I've been on the council for exactly two years, and I've participated in various roles. I am a general council member, an unseen contributor, and the social media chair. Um, To start off the night, we wanted to share some fun facts about youth mental health that we gathered from the CMHA website. We acknowledge that mental health affects all ages, but as tonight we are focused around youth, our facts are youth-based. So today, approximately 5% of male youth and 12% of female youth between the ages of 12 and 19
1: experience a major depressive episode. It is estimated that 10 to 20% of Canadian youth are affected by mental health. In Canada, only one in five children who need mental health services receives them. The total number of youth between the ages of 12 to 19 years old at risk for developing depression is a staggering 3.2 million. And now we have a short video introducing our council.
3: The CASA Youth Council is a mental health action group that was formed back in May of 2016 to provide a platform for youth mental health initiatives. The ages of our members range from 13 to 25.
4: So how does CYC help the community? We have four subcommittees dedicated to mental health awareness. The Community Education Subcommittee strives to educate youth and professionals who work with youth about mental health and the
3: surrounding stigma. The Outreach Committee works to be champions of the CASA Youth Council, striving to build relationships between council members, CASA, and the community. The
5: Unseen Magazine is a yearly publication that features the stories of youth who have different perspectives on mental health. This subcommittee is open to any youth who would like to share their experiences.
3: Staying connected is so important and we wanna make sure you're always up to date on all CYC activities. We do this through our Facebook, our Instagram, and our Twitter. Check us out on all these sites and feel free to email us below with any questions. So as the video
1: introduced, Today, we'll be talking about our Youth Council, who we are, why we got started, and what we do. Before we get into that, I'm gonna give a little background on what CASA is, since we are the CASA Youth Council. CASA Child, Adolescent, and Family Mental Health is an organization with over 20 different programs and services tailored to specific children's mental health issues. CASA provides assessment and treatment services for approximately 4,000 infants, youth, and adolescents, from birth to the age of 18 years old. They do this through consultation in community settings to intensive treatment programs. CASA is a multidisciplinary team who continue to focus on solutions that incorporate the whole family and the community.
2: So some of you might be wondering what we are. Um, CASA Youth Council is a mental health action group that strives to raise awareness and reduce the stigma in the mental health community. We are 25 members and growing, and we have four subcommittees. Our education subcommittee, our community outreach, our unseen magazine, and our social media.
1: The community education subcommittee educates the community on mental health, specifically youth, and those who work with youth. They do this through factual information and per- personal stories. Through this, participants learn about what mental health is, how mental illness can affect them and those around them, and how to find help for themselves and others. The Community Outreach Subcommittee strives to create lasting relations between CASA Youth Council and other organizations or individuals in the community. This subcommittee strives to ensure the longevity of CYC by tackling grant applications and by maintaining networking collaborations. Um, So our Unseen
2: Magazine um, is our mental health publication that works to provide a youth lens on various aspects of mental health. Unseen connects community members who write various stories addressing their own personal journeys, insights, and ideas regarding mental health and illness to spread hope and abolish the negative stigma in the community. Um, Our social media, which is the one that I oversee a little bit with a lot of help, is our way of connecting with as many people as possible. We promote self-care, mental health facts, and updates on our council activity. And speaking of social media, I just want to remind everyone, please use our hashtag Talks to participate in our online community during this presentation and in the future.
1: So who are we exactly? CYC is a group of young activists from different walks of life who have unique experiences and we are between the ages of 13 to 25 years old and yes, 25 is still youth. Um, Our goal is to try and help change the way that youth mental health is perceived in the system and in our communities. We are lucky enough to be able to hold our meetings at the CASA Center in our lovely boardroom. And we meet
2: once a month, but truthfully, CYC is collaborating throughout the month on our various projects.
1: We've all come from unique experiences that have brought us together with a common goal, which is to advocate for mental health. We take our adversity and past struggles and change it into action. So hopefully we can end the stigma and help others along the way.
2: And none of this would be possible without our wonderful facilitator, Stephanie. She's brought this amazing energy to our council and we're so grateful to have her. And all of our past facilitators have also been a big part of our journey. Um, We also acknowledge our community support as being a big contributor to our um, council and we'd also like to thank the CASA board and staff for being so supportive with helping us grow so we started in 2016 with four youth a whiteboard and a hunger for change and now three years later we have four subcommittees 25 members and growing and over the last years we have grown so much but we always remember that it started with four
1: youth and an idea So since our main goal is advocacy, we have some quotes up here by our fellow council members as to why they advocate. We can't speak on behalf of them, but we can share our experiences up here. Advocacy can mean so many different things for different people. It can be a big action or a small one. I've personally known many friends and family members who have struggled with mental health for a long time. When I was in high school, there was little to no knowledge about mental health, how to support others, what mental health is in general. So my friends and family continued to suffer in silence and I felt powerless. Because of this, I advocate to spread knowledge about mental health because when we continue to talk about a topic, people will learn, they'll continue on the conversation, tell their friends, tell others, until this conversation grows and grows and hopefully change can happen. Um, so I joined the council
2: two years ago. Actually, exactly. Um, looking for some kind of education or support. I'm um, a family member had recently gone through a mental health crisis, and all of a sudden, these big words were being thrown around, and I had no idea what anything meant. Um, in school, we're taught about CPR and first aid, all physical issues, but we're not taught how to help someone with anxiety, or someone with a, or someone with a more serious situation. So I reached out to CYC, and I had no clue what it was about. What I stumbled upon were these youth. would come from different backgrounds and different experiences, but all with a common goal, to make change. They wanted to make change because they were done being told they were too young, done being snubbed by professionals, and done being turned away from emergency rooms. They were just done not being taken seriously, and they were exactly who I wanted to work alongside. To me, advocacy means listening. It means learning, being compassionate, and being accepting, because we all need to work
1: together to make a meaningful change. so as I mentioned before we can all choose to advocate in different ways but what's unique about all of us is we all decided to be an advocate through CYC and up here we have some quotes from our council members as well as to why CYC is important to them and why they chose to advocate through this council so I recently joined CYC not too long ago um, because I was looking for a way to have my voice heard I feel like I can advocate and help others and actually make a change by being part of this council, and it's such an amazing feeling. Not only is my voice and ideas heard by my fellow council members and facilitator, but I get to learn so many new things from my council members as well. I get the pleasure of hearing their stories, which always leave me in shock every single time, and really make me think about mental health and the system that we live in. It's very humbling to be able to hear everybody's experiences and learn from them, and when you think you've heard it all, you haven't. It's amazing to be able to work with such brilliant youth who are willing to share their stories to help others and give them hope. It's a great feeling to be part of something bigger than yourself, and I'm very, very lucky to be working with each member and our lovely facilitator, Stephanie. I get to work on great projects as being part of this council and connect with people that I never thought I would be able to. From using our experiences, we turn adversity and our past struggles into action, and I'm very lucky and fortunate that I get to be a part of this. Um, so for me,
2: CYC helped me take my experience and find the beauty in it, the learning. It's granted me the opportunity to listen and learn for, from so many vari- uh, from such a wide variety of perspectives. I've gained this compassion for others that I didn't have prior, and I've been gifted to work among some of the smartest and strongest people that I've ever met. And as a student, I've had all these role models just gifted to me. (laughs) Um, CYC has given me the space to put my energy into something bigger than myself and taught me the importance of speaking out. There's a societal expectation that once you turn 18, you'll do something meaningful or something impactful. And CYC has shown me that you don't need to wait. You can start right now. I started now. I've been grounded the opportunity that I normally would have stumbled upon And the learning that I've received is something that I can't get in a classroom I'm sorry to any teachers up there (laughs) I'm so grateful that I pushed my comfort zone that Thursday night two years ago because it helped me find my purpose
1: now that we've talked a little bit about our council why we advocate and why we chose to be part of this you're probably wondering what we've actually done as a council so we've luckily been able to do a lot of amazing things. We've been able to work with city councilors, we've worked with various groups for different educational presentations. We have three issues of our unseen magazine out with a fourth on the way, and we've been able to provide feedback for CASA. We've also collaborated with various organizations and educational institutes to get our stories and ideas across, and we're all very proud of what we've done so far.
2: And the future for CYC looks big. Um, In the future, we will work with the community community more, collaborate with other councils, and expand our educational presentations. We will work to make CYC as accessible for as many people as possible, because we need everybody to join the conversation and strive for change. Because together, there's so much more we still need to do. And this concludes our presentation. Please follow us and check us out on our social media accounts as we've been posting
1: throughout the night thank you all so much for listening to our presentation and for being here tonight we really appreciate it the evening is not over yet we have some amazing stories and fellow council members who are going to share soon Um, so now I'd like to introduce our moderator for this evening Jennifer
3: Good evening, everyone. How are we doing?
0: Oh, okay.
3: That was a good response. I uh, appreciate you all being here. I know it's a little snowy outside. Um, but my name is Jennifer Nasser. I will be your panel moderator for this evening. Um, this second portion of our presentation is not going to really run in the most traditional sense of a panel. We're going to bring our panelists up and have them share a little bit of a glimpse into their personal stories. Um, And once they've done that, we're gonna have a discussion on how we have been able to take the theme of our presentation for this evening, which is um, adversity into advocacy, and how they've been able to do that as well. And maybe some of the challenges that come out of that um, as well. So uh, if you don't mind joining me in welcoming our four panelists for this evening, Cadence, Caleb, Sasha, and Victoria, come on up. Okay, are we all settled in? Okay, so I guess I'll start with Cadence over here. Uh, Cadence is in her final semester at the University of Alberta studying chemistry and psychology. She joined CYC to use her lived experience to make a significant change in the mental health system. Thanks for joining us today, Cadence. Thanks, Jim. Yeah. So you've had some experiences um, in the school system. Tell us a little bit about that.
5: Um, so. I really enjoy school, I'm kind of a nerd and a dork and I like to recite a lot of scientific facts that nobody really cares about. Right. But um, <laughs> when I, So when I started junior high, I had a pretty big group of friends. Um, we did a lot of sports together, like any club in school, you name it, we were doing it. Um, but when I got into grade nine, um, my friends started getting into a lot of smoking and drinking off the school property, so I started having to not hang out with them because I wasn't really interested in that. Mm-hmm. and and on top of that they started hanging out with what you could call the popular group I guess mm-hmm. and they started bullying some kids that had different mental health problems they were bullying a kid who had autism and they were bullying another kid who had personality disorder and since I was moving away from them and they really were upset about that I started getting bullying as well and um, it just progressively got worse over time mm-hmm. so I started getting pushed up against blockers and getting my clothes ripped up because they said I was depressed and emo and suicidal and they were checking for cuts. And they were just it was just getting worse and worse to the point where it seemed like every three or four days I wasn't going to school anymore. I didn't want to go. I was, my anxiety that I already had was getting so much worse. And it was just a really nasty situation. So then when I got into high school, I got to transfer um, to a different school. Um, that was for sports so i was really excited because i thought i'm gonna have new friends um we're all doing sports it'll be a lot calmer we're only going to school half a day right. but then the second week of school i recognized this guy who was in my french class and um, we were taking the same bus to school and so i sat beside him on the bus because he had said hi to me and like about five minutes down the road he started groping my leg and I didn't know what to do because I didn't want to be bullied again, and I didn't want to be labeled right away, and I didn't want any trouble to happen. So I didn't do anything, and I just froze. And over the school year, the next two, three months, it just got worse and worse. It was happening every morning. His friends were cheering it on. It was just everywhere, even in the school hallways, to the point where my friends at school thought we were in a relationship. So we started having a relationship, and I just ended up getting sexually assaulted and then raped over the course of an entire year.
3: So, who was made aware of the situation? Did you talk to anybody about what was going on?
5: Um, I didn't talk to anybody for quite a long time. Um, the first people who found out were some of my friends, and then my family found out. Um, the school was made aware, but nothing really came of that. In fact, it probably just made it worse.
3: What was the school's response? So, when they found out, um, did they reach out to you? Or did they do anything to help you?
5: So, my school brought me in to the Vice Principal's office, and they talked to me about it, and they came with the conclusion that if I wasn't going to press charges, or if I wasn't gonna go to the police, then whatever came and happened after that was my fault. Um, At that age, I already understood that if I went to the cops, nothing was really gonna happen about it, and it also happened over the course of a year, so really, there wasn't any physical evidence anymore, because you need to get it right away, I really didn't want to. I knew it was going to make my anxiety and PTSD now a lot worse. And right. so I didn't do anything. The teachers were made aware. And some of the teachers were good. And then other teachers took a really nasty response to it. How so? Awesome. So I had one teacher who I previously really liked. And he had to give our class a, a seating plan change because people were being disruptive, typical high schoolers. and he sat me right next to this guy. And um, for the whole class, it was just awful PTSD attacks, anxiety attacks, like I was freaking out, understandably. And after the class, I was able to go up to him and I asked, I was like, I need to change seats. Like I can't sit here, I couldn't focus the entire class. Um, Can I please move? And he just had the response of, no, I'm the teacher, you're the student, you need to listen, you're gonna sit there.
3: And he was aware of the situation?
5: Yes, um, the administration had told him what was going on, and he just said that he couldn't treat me any differently, whether PTSD or not, because it wasn't fair to the rest of the students. And even after that fact, he started calling on me in class constantly, which was funny, because before that, he never called on me in class because I was the good kid, even though I was shy. So he just let me do my own thing.
3: Right, so it seems like you were receiving mixed sort of support at school. Um, but were you actually ever offered like formal support? So some schools have like guidance counselors or like you know like formal channels that you can go to. Were you ever offered that from the administration or any support outside of the school?
5: Um, so my school actually didn't have a counselor. We oh. had a guidance counselor who really once a month did applications to university, and oh. that was it. So yeah. I didn't have any counseling, and it was just kind of left where it was. And right. if I left school, I would just the Secretary would be a little upset and sarcastic to me. That was about it. Wow,
3: okay. So if you could put all those people in one room right now, people that you dealt with in high school, students, teachers, administrators, support networks, what would you say to them?
5: Probably just everyone that you're teaching, everyone you interact with is human. A lot of us all go through our own mental health problems, whether they be an actual diagnosis or just something horrible happening to you, or you're even in a bad right. mood, and just to be a lot kinder to each other, and just try mm-hmm. to understand where they're coming from, I think would go a long way with people. All
3: right. thank you for sharing Cadence. Give it up for Cadence, everyone, please. Thank
6: you. Uh,
3: next, we'll move on to Caleb. So Caleb is a third-year university student, and aspiring counseling psychologist. He joined CYC to participate in the community action to reduce the stigma surrounding mental illness. Thanks for joining us, Caleb. Thank you. Um, so you've had some experiences, actually extensive experience accessing healthcare systems um, and navigating the system, which can be quite challenging. Tell us a little bit about that.
7: Yeah, so when I was about 14, 15, I was struggling a lot with my mental health. Um, I was engaging in self-harm for quite a few years. And my mom finally found out when I was about 15, She um, Called a crisis services or Alberta Health Services and they recommended her to take me to my family doctor. So when I had seen my family doctor, she, she was really good at listening to me. She didn't make me feel like there was anything like incredibly wrong with me, just that I was struggling with mental health issues and she prescribed me medications. And at the time I was really appreciative of being prescribed medications right away and being listened to. But now I kind of wish that I had been sent to counseling or therapy before that, because that's what I actually needed more than anything else. Uh, So after that, it wasn't until I started seeing uh, counselors and therapists. However, I had quite a few struggles with that as well within the healthcare system. Um, I was sent to adolescent therapists, however, I found that it was really difficult to connect with them. Like when I was 15, I saw a therapist who only wanted to do meditation while in session, which was not at all what I needed with what I was dealing with and wasn't really age-appropriate for a 15-year-old. Or other therapists that I had seen treated me like I was five or six years old and wanted to do right. um, like just really strange therapy techniques that weren't at all really useful to me at the time. Yeah.
3: So what does that do sort of, to your perception of receiving care? So you have went to a primary doctor, you've accessed some therapists, doesn't seem to vibe with what you're doing. Uh, how, how, what's happening in your head?
7: Uh, I just felt like I wasn't really being listened to. Like on one hand, my doctor uh, was really easy to talk to. However, therapists and counselors within the healthcare system uh, weren't really receptive to my what I actually needed right. regarding healthcare, yeah.
3: So did you stop there? Or did you continue accessing care? Or was that experience sort of like, man, I'm not touching the healthcare system no more. Uh, around the time
7: much. Oh, I'm sorry. Around the time I turned 16, uh, I realized I was transgender. And so then I had to seek out kind of how to get actual transitioning and like physical transitioning started. Right. Um, so, through my family doctor, I was referred to a bunch of psychiatrists. Um, however, the only ones that were accessible to me were in Red Deer, so I had to drive to Red Deer every couple of months to meet with a psychiatrist. Oh, wow. There, yeah. And that itself was really frustrating as well because it was a similar experience that I had with a therapist, with a psychiatrist, where I wasn't really being listened to right. so one of them was trying to get me on medications again however I requested I did not want to be on a specific type of medications because mm-hmm. I had triggered psychoses last time I took the medications however she refused to put me on any other type of medicine and she only wanted me to go on that specific one or nothing at all and that's mm-hmm. all she was willing to prescribe me in sessions so that mm-hmm. itself was really frustrating yeah,
3: yeah I can imagine for mm-hmm. sure um, so have your um, experiences accessing care, only been in sort of clinical settings, or have you experienced any um, emergency room settings, hospital settings, anything else like that? And yeah. is there sort of a difference between accessing care with a psychologist psychiatrists versus something in a more emergency situation?
7: Uh, last year, I did have a mental health crisis where I did I admitted myself to the emergency room to the hospital right. and. Um, I wasn't able to see any actual psychiatrist there. So when I was admitted uh, a couple hours later, uh, I met with a psychiatric nurse, and she was actually really fantastic. She listened to me really well. Um, She was willing to give me other resources for um, different mental mental health problems I was having. However, uh, she said that they would try to see if I could meet with a psychiatrist that day to get me on medications. However, after being there for about five hours, she returned and she said the psychiatrist didn't have time to see me that day. So then she gave me kind of a pamphlet to go to a different hospital, to go to a different emergency room, and I was discharged that day, even though I was still in the midst of having a really serious mental health crisis. So although the nurse herself was very nice and very receptive to what was going on, it just still felt like the actual system wasn't really there to help me.
3: Right, because I mean you're saying you admitted yourself to the Mm -hmm. hospital and you were in a crisis. Then to have a mental health professional tell you, um, we can't see you today, go try a different hospital. Mm -hmm. Um, That other hospital could be on the other side of town. Yeah. Who knows if you in the mental state that you are in at the time could make it to that hospital. Um, So that's definitely very challenging to hear and I'm sorry you went through that. Um, But I guess my follow up question would be, how do you feel now about accessing the system?
7: Uh, Now I still find that it's a bit of a struggle. Um, With my family doctor, I finally found medications that work for me. Um, After going through several therapists, I did eventually find one that I felt was appropriate for my needs. Um, And I still feel a little bit pessimistic towards uh, the health services still, because I still come across doctors that um, still participate in the stigma surrounding mental health and mental illness, Mm -hmm. and nurses that seem to not really understand what's going on with people that struggle with mental illnesses. Right. But um, I don't. I guess instead of being angry, I try to just uh, use it to kind of work towards ending the stigma towards mental illness. So now I want to work actually in healthcare to hopefully reduce the stigma surrounding that and try to make a bit of change, I guess, in the system.
3: That's awesome. Well, thank you for sharing Caleb with us. Give it up for Caleb, everyone, please, thank you. All right, next up, Sasha. Waiting patiently, thank you. <laughs> Sasha graduated from the University of Alberta with a Bachelor's of Science in Psychology and is now working full-time. She's interested in how stigma reduction, science, and lived experience can inform healthcare decisions. Thanks Hi. for being here, Sasha. <laughs> Hi, Jen, thanks. Right. Um,
4: so before starting my story, I just wanted to acknowledge that pieces of it are shared with a good friend of mine and that I have permission to share The pieces that do belong to him Um, so I was a primary support for someone going through first episode psychosis most people think of psychosis as the media representations of hallucinations and delusions but it's much more than this Um, people can also experience disorganized speech and behavior problems with concentration, memory and attention, loss of pleasure and motivation, as well as social withdrawal and mood symptoms such as anxiety, depression, and suicide. For him, psychosis was a combination of these things. For me, psychosis was three months of devastation, crying myself to sleep, um, and trauma. For four months, I supported my friend as I watched his life completely fall apart. Um, and that was a horrible time. Um, So our stories started as uh, two people that were quite fond of each other, um, and then as two broken hearts as he moved away for school. it was good at first, um, and then the threads of reality started to fall apart. Um, psychosis doesn't really make much sense, so I'm not going to try to explain it. Um, you kind of have to see it or experience it, I think, to truly understand like the extent of the devastation. Um, But yeah, it was quite a struggle. Um, Supporting someone long distance through any kind of mental health crisis, I think, is quite difficult. Um, You can't hold them, you can't see what kind of state that they're in, and you also can't make them go to the emergency room uh, when they need to. So, over the course of the months, uh, there were four separate help-seeking events where he did try asking for help and um, did not receive it any of the four times. And that was quite frustrating too, because I don't know what they were looking at, but what I was seeing was uh, me begging every night, uh, trying to get him to go, um, and just negotiating with something that just doesn't make sense. Um, And yeah, so time passes, and then he does get help once he comes home but uh, that took a really, really long time.
3: Okay, so he comes home, he Mm -hmm. receives help here, in like a formal setting, like a hospital setting?
4: Yeah, like an emergency room setting. And were you there as well? Yes, yeah.
3: Okay, so were you provided any support as the caregiver there, like professional support?
4: Um, the only thing that I received as support was validation. Okay. So that was the first time in months that a professional looked me in the eyes um, and validated that what I was seeing and experiencing as a support was valid. Right. And that was really great. But other than that, I didn't
3: receive any formal resources. Oh wow, yeah, okay. So during this time, and your friend is in crisis and you're in the hospital, you're not receiving full, um, sorry, I thought my mic turned off. Um, you're not receiving anything more than validation, but also you're trying to balance the role of a caregiver and a supporter. Um, where did you turn to for support?
4: Yeah, uh, so for me, my friends were my biggest resource, as well right. as my family. I was pretty well connected in that my family has a pretty good understanding of the mental health system. Right. So that was really fortunate. Um, and other than that, yeah, friends, like, you don't realize how big a deal they are until they're
3: there. But right. when they're there, they're there. Um, so that was support for you, you yeah. to your friends. Mm-hmm. Um, did you have any friends that you and this individual shared? like
4: yeah so we did have a shared friend group and that was difficult to navigate just because i was trying to mediate the stigma um like psychosis and schizophrenia spectrum disorders are very highly stigmatized so i was really mindful of the fact that if he got better and if he actually made it home in one piece that he would have to integrate back into these friend groups and I was really concerned about um, how they would receive him. Um, So it was really difficult um, because I couldn't reach out for those friends for help. So it was just me acting quite strange for several months and not really disclosing any information.
3: Right, and what does that sort of do for, I I mean I don't want to call it the burden, but sometimes as a caregiver or as a supporter, we put a lot on ourselves, you mm-hmm. know, we're like, oh, like I should have done something better. Like I should have been here and supportive more. What does that do for you in that moment and how you feel as to the extent that you're supporting this individual?
4: Yeah, I think that the caregiver burden is something that uh, we probably all experience at some point. Right. But uh, for me, it was the guilt, um, like, yeah what if I don't pick up the phone and they're not there in the morning anymore? Is that my fault? And it took me a really long time to kind of get past that, like years of it's not your fault. And um, if something happens, like you have no control over a completely separate entity, um, which is hard for, I think, any of us to really get over. But that was something that was a huge
3: struggle for me as well. So what do you think you've learned from this experience of um, sort of being, not only balancing a friend, being a friend, um, being potentially a partner, um, a caregiver, and also so many probably other things that were going on in your life at the same time. Um, What did this experience teach you, not only about yourself, but sort of the mental health journey as a whole?
4: Yeah, um, so for myself, I guess, it taught me that you can't save anyone except for yourself and that as a caregiver or a support like you need to ask for help and the only reason I'm sitting up here today is because I asked for help and I think that's really important but you have to put your life jacket on before you jump in the pool and you definitely should not be jumping in the pool if you don't have one on. Um, As far as systems go, I think as Caleb had mentioned like it is frustrating living in this society where the mental health system just fails and um, that's all i learned about it yeah uh, as the days go by i get a little bit more optimistic Uh, Some days are better than others, like the world has beautiful people in it. I'm sitting next to a bunch of them, but the world also needs um, a little bit more help when it does come to uh, policy and making sure that things are in place uh, for when they need to be.
3: Awesome. Thank you for sharing. Give it up to Sasha, everybody. Thank you. and right. last but not least Victoria so Victoria is an undergraduate psychology major at the University of Alberta she joined CYC to combat stigma and gaps prevalent in the mental health care systems uh, thanks for joining us
0: thank you Jen.
3: Um so Victoria is going to be actually covering uh, the topic of stigma um, in multiple many multiple to multiple You guys know what I'm trying to say. Mental (laughs) multitudes. thank you. Um, So I guess let's start with you've had experiences very similar to Caleb um, in the healthcare system and sort of the stigma attached to it. Tell us a little bit about that.
8: Yeah, so before I begin, I'm just gonna give a quick definition of stigma. Stigma is a negative connotation or stereotype surrounding a specific person, circumstance, or situation. And unfortunately, much like many other youth sitting up with us today and in the audience, I have experienced significant stigma in regards to my mental health. Um, Starting with the healthcare system, I am a survivor of childhood trauma and many adverse childhood experiences. This, in my early adolescence, had caused me to engage in unhealthy coping mechanisms, pardon me, such as self-harm, eating disorders, and eventually it led to suicidality. When I was about 13, uh, my mental health really took a turn for the worse. Right. And it happened gradually, but also suddenly at the same time, if that makes sense. Yeah. And I had disclosed to my mom, I was uh, in psychosis and severely suicidal. And when your child is going through something like that, and you're going through something like that yourself, you don't really know how to respond. There's no script or manual on how to deal with a suicidal child. And so, not knowing where else to turn, my family took me to the hospital. I, my first trip to the hospital, I waited in the waiting room for close to six hours in the middle of the night before finally taken into a room. When the psychiatrist came in, I was sleeping because teenagers don't like to stay up throughout the night, known fact. Um, however, because when the psych- psychiatrist came in while I was sleeping, I guess that means when you're sleeping, you're not suicidal, and so I was sent home because if you're sleeping, you're fine. You must not want to kill yourself anymore. Um, That did nothing. So, day or two later, I was taken back to the same hospital, same emergency room. This time, I was taken a little bit more seriously. Um, I was seen by a resident doctor after getting blood tests, urine tests, making sure I wasn't on any drugs or hallucinogens. And the resident doctor that came in was traumatizing and very crude in his wording. Um, There was a decision made to admit me to a adolescent psychiatric ward. And before I was taken up, he came in and he spoke to me and he said, all right, we're gonna get you in. Are you ready to go learn from the best of the best? Because mental health is a competition, apparently. That's what I learned. And he broke patient-doctor confidentiality by telling me and trying to scare me Um, Saying we just finished stitching up a girl's arms from severe self-harm on the unit. Are you ready to go be around that? And it was shocking because you're there to seek help, and you're getting mistreated and you're already scared going in you don't know what's going on you're in psychosis and the doctors are making you feel nothing but worse Um, I wish my next couple trips to emergency for crises over a few years were better unfortunately they were not over the course of the next couple years i was told that i was manipulative i was making my mental health up i was told that my abuser and i just had to reconcile and that would fix all my problems Um, my mother was told that she was the reason that her child was suicidal and in crises that her parenting wasn't good enough and the stigma that surrounded my care was astounding and devastating.
3: Wow. Um, yeah, there's really yeah. nothing quite like it. So it obviously sounds that you experienced a ton of stigma in the healthcare system and a theme that I think we've heard reoccurringly in many different areas. Um, but did you have at least support with friends and family? Like, Did you feel like, man, I can step out of this stigma world and like, really go to my family and friends and feel a little bit better?
8: Unfortunately, with the stigma around mental health, what I was receiving from the healthcare system, that translates into self-stigma. So the stigma that I hear, I internalize and place it back on myself. I am still now just getting comfortable telling my friends and family about what I've gone through because for a long time I felt like I had to be really ashamed of it, like I wasn't worth telling my story, like I was insignificant because that's what I felt for so long. I know now that my friends and family tried to support me in the very best way that they knew how. Unfortunately, with that stigma prevalent, there's no manual for mental health on how to deal with a loved one like there is for physical health. Um, Shortly after I was discharged from my first stay in a psychiatric ward, uh, a younger sibling of mine had a life-threatening physical health crisis that caused them to be admitted to the hospital. And during that time, Uh, my sibling had friends and family visiting um, showered with gifts and balloon and loves and support and all that and I would like to point out that I felt nothing but relief and overwhelming love that my sibling was okay in that moment but myself having just been discharged from the psychiatric ward a few weeks prior it felt like I had none of that and for a long time it made me feel very worthless and like my crises was not as severe, was not as worth love or attention.
9: Um,
8: I now know that that's not true. It's because there's a lack of education and family support in the best way that they know how. But you see in the TV shows and movies how to support someone going through physical health in the hospital, but there's really nothing out there to teach how to go through mental health supporting a loved one, Mm -hmm. as Sasha touched on. Um, And so that just really delved into my self-stigma and made me feel even worse about my mental health and my condition and
3: made me feel like I was at fault and I wasn't good enough. Right, so it, I mean, I, it seems like it almost, it's you internalize a little bit more, the stigma as it comes to you. Um, do you think that language at times can also perpetuate and increase that stigma?
8: Oh, most definitely. Um, One thing that I'm very proud of on our council is that we strive to always use person-first language. And so what that is, is that we take someone who is living with bipolar disorder and we will say someone living with versus suffering with. Um, If someone has schizophrenia, we won't say that they're schizophrenic because that just associates the person as only being their illness. However, unfortunately, we still see language like this and jokes about mental illnesses and using them as adjectives prevalent in social media and so much stigma and misunderstanding. And when you're a youth and your brain is developing and you're impressionable, going to the online community that many of us are a part of and seeing nothing but bashing what you're living through every single day and how much pain you're in being made fun of, it's crushing and it makes you feel even worse and it just, again, perpetuates that self-stigma that you feel every day.
3: So how do we change that? It's a tough question, I know. It is, it's I'm putting you on the question.
8: spot. That's okay, but that's okay.
3: How do we work towards changing that?
8: I think the first step, whether you're an individual going through mental health crises, whether you're a family, friend, caregiver, loved one, clinician, teacher, it's that you need to remember that despite the statistics, despite the overwhelming number of youth dealing with mental health, each and every one of them is a person. And each and every one of them has a diverse story and life experience like you've heard from the four of us up here today. And the key step is humanizing that individual that you're talking with and treating your patients, your loved ones, like they are still themselves. They're not a definition of their illness. If they are in a psych ward, then doesn't mean they're crazy doesn't mean they need to be locked up it just means that just like with physical health they can't do it on their own anymore and they need a little bit of extra help and that's all it comes down to you just got to see them as a person and love them for exactly who they are
3: awesome thank you so much for sharing with us give her a round of applause everybody (laughs) all right so now is my favorite part because I get to grill them Um, Put you on the spot a little bit some questions. We're going to move into more of uh, the panel portion But I'm going to call it a conversation because that is really the theme this evening Um, Conversation between us uh, a conversation between you folks and a conversation between both of us Um, So I guess I'm going to start very basically this conversation and ask what does advocacy mean? In a general sense. I mean we talk advocacy 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 What are we even talking about? What does it mean?
7: I think it means um, (laughs) um, representing yourself, um, representing kind of what you've gone through and being able to speak about it to others, because we can't reduce the stigma without um, sharing our stories and without letting people know that we are more than our illnesses. So to me advocacy is talking about kind of what we've gone through to reduce the stigma surrounding mental health and mental illnesses.
4: Uh, Building off of Caleb's point, um, I think also advocacy uh, can mean something as simple as allyship. Like um, you don't need to be screaming from the bleachers for justice. You just need to put your hand up when something's wrong and like let someone know that you're their ally. Right.
6: Anybody else have
8: thoughts? Yeah, to me advocacy is a way to build from our adversity. Right. And it gives me the opportunity to take the negative experience that I've gone through and really push for changes in the system in the hopes that if my advocacy can help at least one youth not go through the atrocities that I did, then it's all worth it. And I feel like all of us can sleep a little bit better at night knowing that we are at least trying our very darn best to make yeah. a difference for others.
3: So, what do you think advocacy has sort of taught you about your own mental health journey? Like, has it Change your own perspective, or adapted your perspective in any way?
7: Um, as Victoria brought up, uh, self-stigma used to be something that really um, affected my mental health more than right. my mental illness already did, and I felt that advocacy kind of taught me that I'm okay, and that I'm not just my illness, that I'm still a person. Yeah. I think for me,
5: it, it, is since I hope that I didn't have before, um, joining this group really helped me realize that I don't have to just live in the dark and just be upset and living with this PTSD and anxiety for the rest of my life. I can actually do something productive with it and mm-hmm. then try to work towards like a happier and healthier future.
3: Right. Um, I think like uh, with our theme for this evening, which is, like I had mentioned at the beginning, turning adversity into advocacy. Um, this is my personal opinion, and I would love to hear what you guys think. I think it would be almost irresponsible for us to come up here and say that advocacy is easy. That you can just go for it. Advocacy is the way to go, woohoo. Because I'm sure there's a ton of people in this room here today, ton of people in the city, across the country who want to get involved, who don't know how to take the first step. They don't know where to turn to take the first step. And if they can take the first step, they don't know what the second step is. Is it fair to say that advocacy isn't always easy and that there are barriers to advocacy? Yeah. I think
8: most definitely um, it's a big first step, especially as Caleb was saying with that self-stigma. But touching on what Sasha said a little bit ago, it can be as easy as just allyship and you don't have to take that big scary step of joining a council and bearing your soul to 25 other youth. You can just find a loved one that you notice is struggling and say, I'm here for you and if you need help and you don't have a voice, I will be your voice because I know how to do that now. And it doesn't have to be a big first step. A lot of people think advocacy means impacting hundreds, thousands, millions of people, but you can be an ally for one person and save one person's life, and that makes a big difference.
4: I guess we were talking about um, advocacy being hard um, and Vic and I were actually just talking about this the other day um, and all the stigma that also surrounds advocacy, advocacy sorry guys, um, especially in the mental health community, I think. Um, like I was introspecting the other day being like, why don't I want my coworkers here? And if I was advocating for a physical illness, would I be okay with it? And the answer was yes. So I've just been thinking a lot about it ever since we talked about it. Um, And there is stigma, which is a huge barrier to it as well.
3: Anybody else to add on that?
5: I think the hardest part for me is the passion and emotion behind it. Um, right. I have a harder time not getting involved and I think the hardest part is making boundaries to keep yourself safe, because there's so many things that you wanna do and you wanna help out with, but like even coming up and sharing a story for a lot of people is really damaging and there's a lot of negative reactions to the work we're trying to do and I think right. that's the hardest part.
3: Cool, thanks. So we've talked about um, sort of Briefly about the barriers that can access uh, that are present when people are trying to advocate We combat those barriers So for example if we take think on a very minor level there are actually physical barriers So we are very fortunate we get to meet at the Casa building and we have a place to meet and it's awesome um, but somebody might not be able to get to that meeting somebody might not be able to physically be present or there might be other issues that arise. How do we sort of combat these micro barriers that occur?
8: I think it's as easy as like, again, what Sasha was saying is allyship. Um, maybe not in the beginning, but I feel like now we are a community and almost a family of support for each other. Right. And even in the sense of transportation, if someone doesn't have a ride, we will carpool um, if someone needs a ride home when it's cold, we'll give a ride home. And we just always are all there to support each other. If someone's starting out and they don't have a space, it can be pretty scary. But when you're getting those initial conversations, even something like noticing, oh, this Starbucks downtown is really empty today. Why don't we go meet? Right. And it doesn't have to be super formal. You don't need a building or an organization. If you want to make change, it starts with one person, one idea, one hope and you start from there and you grow and hopefully others wanna change with you.
3: Awesome. Anybody else to add?
4: Um, My most productive conversations, I think, have been informal. So just adding on to that, like you don't need, yeah, you don't need the boardroom to get started.
3: Cool, thank you. Um, So I guess another question I have um, is what, what has it helped you in your role as an advocate? What is something that you feel like, um, this made me feel very supported and made me feel confident in my ability to advocate for mental health? It could be something really small, it could be something you pick.
8: Um, I think it's the power of sitting in a room with 18 to 25 other youth, knowing that you're not alone. Because as one of the quotes said in the beginning, a lot of people suffer alone and in silence with their mental health, but when you get the chance to meet with other youth who say, I've been through something similar, or even if they haven't, they say, yeah, that must have sucked. Mm-hmm. Then you know, okay, I deserve to feel angry about this. I don't deserve to feel isolated with this. Yeah. And it is incredibly empowering.
5: Um, going off of what Vic said, our group is really amazing. We all are really a huge family, and we really care about each other, and we always check in with each other. We're always staying like two hours after the council meeting ended, just to chat.
3: It's (laughs) the free pizza too, (laughs) I think I would say.
5: So I think having a group of people who just really care about each other more than the actual work you're doing is probably the most inviting factor of it.
3: I 100% agree.
7: I also think that um, taking the space to care about yourself too, is a... Big part in like advocating as a group right. and knowing like what makes you comfortable and what doesn't make you comfortable. And although like, we all support each other really well, you also have right. to support yourself too, and let yourself know like you're doing the best that you can. Because right. sometimes I go to the group and I say nothing the whole time, but right. I still think well, at least I went, at least I did something,
3: and that's yeah.
7: enough for now.
3: So what are some ways we can like support ourselves? Um, like, you know, make sure we're taking care of ourselves as advocates. What are some things you guys do? And whether it's like before a meeting, just throughout the week, is there anything that you do just to sort of ground yourself in your role?
5: I think after every presentation or after a huge project we do, we always debrief with each other. It's not very right. formal, but we kind of get around and talk about our feelings if someone's having a really hard time with what went on or what was said. Um, Usually look outside and whoever's closest, and it's not usually the same person, but they'll comfort them. Um, We also check in a lot during the week with each other, so we're constantly in contact.
3: Anything else? Anyone else does?
4: Um, I set boundaries, like Caleb mentioned, and like if I'm in a bad place, then. I'm not gonna go out today. And I think that was really important and it took me a really long time to learn, but that's really
3: important. Cool. So what's your message for those out there who want to get involved and advocate for mental health? Whether it's a youth, whether it's adult, whether it's a professional, you name it. What is your message to them? And I'd love to hear from each one of you. Whoever wants to go first. I won't put you on spot cadence because you're next to me. Whoever goes first gets a chocolate from the audience. Come on, guys, someone needs to have a chocolate.
8: Well, that's a great incentive. There you I'm go. I'm going to take you up on that.
3: Denise, you're a chocolate.
8: <laughs> Good. Um, I would say to anyone who wants to start advocating that it's okay to start small yeah. and it's okay to start local. As we said, um, I was one of the first four members of CYC, and we really did. We were in the downtown Castle location with four youth, some donuts, and a whiteboard. And we drew a little diagram and the facilitators at the time said, tell us what's wrong with mental health. Tell us what you want to change. And that whiteboard and that diagram grew into where we are today. And so people see advocacy as big organizations like how we're growing as CYC or um, organizations such as Jack.org But it starts small, and it starts local, and even if you and a buddy team up and say, you know what, we're gonna start going out, and we're gonna try to speak to people about this, then you're doing a good job. It doesn't have to look any specific way. There's no cookie cutter advocacy manual. It's getting passionate about something you wanna take action on, and then giving yourself the permission to do that.
3: Awesome, thank you.
4: Uh, Follow up to that. Um, We're out of chocolate, there's no more chocolate. (laughs) Uh, for me I guess I can't generalize but um, advocacy was turning all my anger at the world into something way more productive and I think that um, if you like look upon yourself and you're like what am I super angry about Um, it's probably something that's valid to be angry about and is a productive cause for you to be putting your energy into Um, and your experiences in this world are valid and uh, we are the own experts on our own experiences and I think that owning that and using it for change is like where to start. Awesome, thank you.
7: Um, I found that advocacy has been kind of interpersonal for me. at least when I was younger, and I did start telling people about my mental health problems, I realized like I do have friends and I do have family that right. struggle as well. And for me, advocacy um, isn't always kind of community things. It's also um, speaking with like coworkers and speaking right. with other like students in school and things like that about my mental health challenges because I remember how lonely I felt when I thought that I was the only person experiencing mental health difficulties and I never want anyone else to feel that way too. Right. So I kind of just never stopped talking about mental health and like mental illness, um, just because I don't want anyone to feel alone. So for me, like advocacy has been kind of
10: every, everywhere. Right. so, it was, yeah. Awesome. You
7: can
3: okay,
5: For me, advocacy is probably one of the most important things I do. It's probably the most thing I'm excited about every, day. Um, I just, I think it's the most important, the rates of mental illness are rising, the rates of suicide and suicide attempts are rising. We really need to get this mental health system fixed before it just becomes a worse epidemic than it is right now.
3: Right. Awesome, thank you for sharing. Um, I don't have any more formal questions to ask you guys, um, but I guess I will open the floor if you have any finishing comments for anyone else. It's okay if you don't. Okay, awesome. Um, So just letting everyone know, this is the end of our panel discussion for this evening. I do wanna thank our panelists. It takes a lot of courage to come up here and be vulnerable, um, to share your personal stories, to get grilled by me by random questions that you did not prepare for. And you're probably like, damn Jen. Don't worry, Denise has the chocolate for you. (laughs) Not gonna slip out of that one. Um, But no, in all honesty and seriousness, thank you. Thank you for sharing your voices and allowing us to have a conversation today. And I also would like to extend a huge thank you to you, the audience. Um, It might not seem like it, but up here we can see everything and we can hear everything. And you guys have been absolutely very respectful throughout all this. So please give a huge round of applause, not not only to our panelists, but to you folks as well. Thank you. Uh, so we're actually going to stay seated, and I'm going to welcome up to the stage Rachel and Jasmine, who will be giving us our summary presentation for this evening. Please don't scurry off. Summary does not mean end. So stay seated, and I'll welcome them up to the stage.
6: Thank you to all of our panel members today and our moderator, Jen, for that stimulating discussion. We encourage you to keep the conversation going and follow us on social media. We would love to hear your thoughts on our discussion today. To conclude our lecture this evening, there are a few key takeaways our council would like to share with the audience.
0: As our keynotes touched on earlier, our Youth Council serves to share youth voices increase awareness, and reduce stigma. We each bring our experiences and desire to connect with others in order to promote change around perceptions of mental health in the community as we strive to transform ideas into action.
6: To align with the topics touched on by our panelists, we collaborated with other members of the Youth Council to share some small steps that we can take in our interactions with youth, whether or not the youth is living with a mental illness diagnosis, as a family member, friend, health professional, or educator. Family members and friends are oftentimes the first people that youth turn to for support. As a family member or friend of a youth living with mental illness, we want you to know, it, know not to be afraid to reach out if you notice a change in someone's behavior. Simply asking if they're okay, how they're doing, and showing you can, you care can go a long way. And if you feel comfortable with this, ask the hard questions if you suspect someone close to you is struggling, such as asking if they are having suicidal thoughts or self-harming. Um, Please know that you can offer your support in a number of ways. Sometimes all it takes is just to listen, to listen to truly understand and show unconditional positive regard without any judgment or criticism. In this way you can create a safe space for them to open up.
0: Being in this position of support for a youth living with mental illness may mean you are advocating for those who may not have a voice. During this time, it is equally, if not more important, as a family member or friend, to advocate for yourself and seek out your own supports as well if you are feeling overwhelmed. It's okay not to know how to handle a situation and to set personal boundaries for the types of support you can offer and when. The symptoms of caregiver burden can range widely from fatigue to fluctuations in mood. It's important to recognize the signs. Analogous to the instructions you are told in case of an emergency on an aeroplane, you must put on your oxygen mask first before you can take care of another. There are supports available in the community through local support groups and organizations, and as we know CASA offers various programs for youth and their families. There are other organizations such as the Canadian Mental Health Association that provides resources as well.
6: Healthcare professionals in all areas and specialties are also uniquely positioned to engage youth and play an essential role in the care of youth living with mental illness. Acknowledge that these individuals are coming to healthcare professionals in a vulnerable state, and there's an inherent power imbalance in the relationship. Your words and actions leave a big impression on your client. It is critical to unconditionally show sincerity and empathy to your patients, give them your full attention when speaking, In this way you can create a safe place to build rapport and trust. While speaking to children and youth particularly, refrain from using jargon where possible and avoid speaking down to the youth. Use age appropriate first person language and seek to demonstrate an understanding of the individual and family's health literacy. There are a lot of big medical words that youth do not know and do your best to explain things in ways they can understand to help make the youth feel more comfortable. Also take into account the family's cultural background and the social supports available to them. For example, who in your client's life will be most involved in their recovery process and who is part of their circle of care, whether they are friends, family or significant others at their age.
0: When they may initially present or are first diagnosed, this may be a difficult or turbulent time in a youth's life. Demonstrating a vested interest in the youth's recovery can make a profound and positive impact. For instance, taking the time to explain expectations and boundaries of the patient-provider relationship. Also, checking that they understand the implications associated with a specific diagnosis or a certain treatment path and the alternatives are just a few ways that you can help ensure youth and their caregivers can be involved every step of the way. When youth access care, we feel it's important for providers to be self-aware of the implicit biases or assumptions that may interfere with an understanding of the youth mental health experience and perspective, and in the same light, recognize that youth may have their own perceptions. There may be stigma around certain medications or what a certain diagnosis means. By checking they understand and are informed, you can dispel any misconceptions or negative stereotypes they may hold. Though parents and caregivers are important members in the child or youth circle of care, listening directly to the youth perspective as a health provider can provide valuable insight and help guide patient-specific goals of care. As a provider, you hold a role whereby you can advocate for those who may be or feel as though they are unable to communicate for themselves. Our hope is that you use your position to empower these individuals to be partners when making treatment decisions. Lastly,
6: educators play a large role in recognizing mental health concerns in children's and youth. Teachers may be the first to notice changes in a youth's behavior. For example, dropping grades, frequently missing classes, or an inability to concentrate in class. These behaviors are not always due to intentional delinquency. If you suspect someone is struggling, check in with your students, listen to, your, to their concerns, and tailor your language to the individual's level. Again, don't be afraid to ask the hard questions. Acknowledge your role as a teacher or counselor, that you are an individual students often look to as a voice of reason. It is important to be informed yourself of the support available to students and where they can further seek help. In addition, be sure to inform students of the mental health resources at your school throughout the school year. For example, how and when they can book time with a student counselor, where information brochures and pamphlets are located, and importantly, the number of the
0: kids' crisis line for times of emergency. If your school doesn't have one already, consider starting a peer support network to create a safe space for students. Establish and encourage mental health advocacy when you're within your school to raise awareness, such as integrating a mental health week to abolish any negative stigma. Advise the students about academic accommodations that the school offers to support students that are struggling to limit the influence the negative influence of mental health um, on academic performance. Our council was excited to learn that EPSV has released a guide for educators on the different mental health conditions that can present in school-aged children what the signs are and how to support these students. We feel as though school professionals can ensure no
6: struggling students slip through the cracks by becoming informed on what to look for, speaking with students first and foremost when noticing changes in their behavior or academic performance, and subsequently knowing where students can go for additional support.
0: Overall, there are everyday changes we can all make to promote the well-being of others and make a difference in the lives of youth. This could be something as simple as showing recognition and consideration for situations or challenges that a youth may be facing at any given time as we all carry our own stories and experiences with us that shape who we are. Also, using first person language such as this person or individual is living with a given condition instead of labeling someone as a fault of their medical condition. This could just as well be the case for mental and physical illness. Further, in our day and age, where everyone has access to social media and the Internet and information at their fingertips, it may be easy enough to take what we see or hear at face value. This could be especially true for youth and children accessing social media.
6: Mental health and mental illness encompasses a wide topic. Take the time to critically analyze what you see is being shared and increase your understanding of certain conditions and diagnoses. Speak with individuals living with these conditions and don't be afraid to correct misinformation, whether that is in the school, the workplace, or online media pages. For example, the word triggered is commonly used to broadly describe something that may not necessarily describe a content or topic that may be sensitive to others. And in in this way, makes a mockery of real triggers that can seriously influence someone. Another thing I'm sure we can all use a a lot more of is self-care. It doesn't have to be a dedicated spa day or a vacation to some tropical destination like what is often proliferated on social media. It could be as simple as taking a 10 minute walk outside, listening to your favorite playlist, spending time with your loved ones, or treating yourself to an extra cheat day throughout the week. Take time to put aside your worries and responsibilities to do something that makes you happy and ultimately takes your mind off things. And this will look different for everyone. Through these small steps, we hope we can make STEM a change in our communities. And now for the the next 15 to 20 minutes, we would like to take questions from the audience for our panel members before we finish with some final remarks.
2: anybody with the questions I can hand over the mic to people so I think I saw her hand raised first over here
11: I just like to know how Victoria uh, was able to uh, overcome all the challenges that she had because you presented very beautifully and your path sounds like it was most challenging overall for you to do
8: thank you um, and I just like to say that The way we present is all different but everyone has so much adversity that they've lived through and I'm grateful that we've all had the opportunity to land up here together today. Um, I would like to say that I did not get through my journey alone. I could not have done it without my supports, um, the biggest one being my mom. She has been with me from day one and she has been my advocate when I could not speak for myself. Second to that is my psychologist who I've been seeing for six years and She has effectively kept me alive throughout all my adversity She has enabled me to speak for myself and to help speak for others Um, And I'm still getting over those challenges. I still have trauma. I still have PTSD I can't go sit in emergency rooms without having a PTSD episode There's part of my stories that I don't tell to anyone Um, And it's a process. There's no one way that you just wake up in the morning and say, you know what, I'm good. That didn't happen. We're good now. We're fine, right? And the biggest thing is to find your circle of supports, whether that's a family, a professional, or a council of young people who on your bad days say, you know what, you showed up and we love you.
3: Thank you so much. I just want to say thank you to all of you for your beautiful and generous presentation and all the people that were behind the scenes and did all the pieces.
12: Um, you're all amazing and wonderful and brilliant. <laughs> but my question for
3: you is, so many people with mental health concerns, and you spoke on this too, live with a lot of self-stigma. That can often be the thing that harms us as much as other people's stigma towards us. So what would you say have been the things that have helped you the most? And you've spoke to us a little bit with reducing your own self-stigma to sort of love yourself first. Um, I guess I'll, I, if you don't mind if I answer too as well. Um, so I originally joined the CAS Youth Council not on the basis of wanting to advocate for mental health. Um, I come from a background, a cultural background where mental health is not talked about. It simply doesn't exist, and it's something that I sort of put into my own self-stigma, pushing aside any of the things I've dealt with throughout my life. So when I approached CYC, it was actually to do research. (laughs) I emailed Cass and I was like, can I do some research? They were like, no. (laughs) And they're like, do you wanna join this council? And to answer your question, through joining a council and educating myself on mental health, mental illness, and realizing a lot of my own stigma that I placed on myself because of the cultural restraints that were present um, really allowed me to break through and to find that I am extremely passionate about this. I'm extremely passionate not only on a personal level, but also to bring change to my own community as well. Um, And I create for those who don't have voices either. So that would be my answer to you.
8: Kind of going off of Jen, the thing that has effectively helped me most to reduce my self-stigma is the CASA Youth Council. Um, Because even when I first joined, I still felt so negatively about myself and my mental health. I wasn't quite ready to share what I had gone through in full extent. I just showed up and was like, yeah, let's change some stuff. Let's do it. Um, But through that, And meeting all these wonderful people and hearing all these stories that are both so diverse from my own, but also so similar, has taught me that if I think that these people are worth something, if I think that I can love these people from the bottom of my heart, and that these people deserve nothing but love and kindness and the best care that our society can offer, and I have so many similarities to them, then maybe I'm worth something too and seeing so many people support me and being able to support so many people in return just really helps realize that I don't need to place as much stigma on myself because I'm good too.
5: Um, For me, I have to tell myself two things constantly. Um, The first one is that I'm not my illness and that I'm not my trauma and I'm really not the person that I am because of what happened to me, I would have been somebody else. And the second one I have to remind myself, and my husband reminds me quite a bit, is I guess, say if it was Vic or if it was Sasha or Caleb and they were going through this, what would you tell them to do? What, would, what resources would you give them instead? Because if it, I just think of myself, I don't want myself to get help, I don't think I deserve help. Or, so it's better to think of it as a different person.
12: Thank you all for taking the time to share your stories today, and I love that someone used the word vulnerability because um, that's exactly what this situation was, and I'm really great that we could all gather here and share this space and do that. So I work in the healthcare field as a researcher, and it was very informative for me to hear today um, the experiences that you all have had going through the healthcare system. And although I'd like to still consider myself a youth, that was definitely a little bit um, in the past for me. And so, although I can draw on my own perspectives when talking to family or friends or professionals about my own mental health, um, I would really appreciate it if anyone's willing to share what positive experiences they may have had in the mental health system, and if you could describe what conditions or settings you were in, um, potentially what may have motivated you to share your story in that moment, or what were, um, or ways you could describe the person that you shared your story with, or what that interaction was like, so that I can hopefully use that information to create more of those experiences and not just stop the not good experiences, if that makes sense.
7: That's a really good question. Um, when I first saw my general practitioner, she was one of the first healthcare workers I had seen, and she still remains to be one of the best that has helped me. Because uh, when I first saw her, I was engaging in self-harm, and she treated me like she wasn't scared of me. Because up until then, like my friends, my family were terrified, but she was just kind of there, and she just wanted to help me and she was so empathetic and she was willing to actually take the time to sit and listen to me. And although I've had a lot of awful experiences in healthcare, I found the best experiences that I've had with doctors and nurses and other healthcare workers have been when they actually take the time to sit and listen to what I'm saying. because um, I find there's been so many times where I'm kind of just rushed out of the room, and, but when they're willing to ask me about my symptoms or ask me about like, how school's doing, how I feel overall at home, things like that, and sort of my mental health journey, then I do feel like I'm listened to and I feel like I actually have a purpose to be there and I'm able to connect with the healthcare worker more. And I find that's when I do have the best outcomes too, like clinical outcomes after seeing those healthcare workers that speak with me. Um, And also the psychiatric nurse that I saw last year was super lovely because, yeah, she took the time to actually um, listen to me speak. And although the overall hospital experience was really Bad, um, she was really nice because she gave me actual like a huge just booklet of resources of things that I can turn to and things I can go to and she was almost like apologetic that I couldn't see a psychiatrist and she understood that I was struggling and she let me know that she did as much as she could have done in that moment and that she still wanted to help me to still get other resources. So I find with all healthcare workers the most that they can do is just take the time to just sit and listen with your patient or with your client
8: Um, By far, the best healthcare experience that I've had is with my psychologist. Um, As I mentioned, I've been seeing her for six years and with that kind of time you get to develop a pretty great relationship. Um, She has been my rock and she has been there to believe in me when I can't believe in myself. Um, One thing that really helped with her was when I can't speak for myself, when I don't really know what's going on, Somehow she does and that comes with time and relation. Um, But she also offers to help me speak to my family and my friends when I'm not able to speak. And that can be me talking with her and then bringing my mom in for the second half of a session or sometimes she'll just have private phone calls with my mom to say this is what happened today, this is what Victoria wants you to know but that she's not able to say for herself. Um, It's really taking the time to validate your clients and not just see them as clients, she sees me as a person, she sees me as the young adult and student and successful advocate that I am. And through that belief in me when I didn't believe in myself, she helps me believe in me again. Um, And she supports me in everything I do. She came to my high school graduation, which isn't something that many psychologists can do, but she was there. And at my ceremony, she looked me in the eyes and she said, I had no doubts that you'd get here. And just something like that and having a professional, one person in your corner in the system who says, I will fight for you and I believe you and I will not stop believing in you, it's
11: life changing.
12: Sorry, I just, I hope no one minds that I'm hogging the mic for another moment. So, in what you shared, um, Caleb and Victoria, it sounds like it's more about the people you interact with and those one-on-one relationships than anything in particular about the health system as a whole, Is, is that correct? we'd need to be then taking ownership just as individuals and thinking, oh, it's a whole system, what can little old me do? But realizing that we each have a role, would you say that that would be a fair comment to make?
8: Yeah, I think that everyone definitely does have a role. And if you're a clinician who works in the emergency room, you're not gonna have that opportunity to create that six year relationship. But the bottom line of what my psychologist did for me was see me as a person and not a problem or an illness or something to be fixed or session number five of my eight session day to get over and then I get to go home. It's taking the time, whether it's long-term or short-term care to say, you're a person, I hear you, your experiences and your feelings are validated and thank you for being vulnerable. Thank you for accessing this care no matter how hard or easy it may be. And so it's the little things in that person-first relationship that really makes the difference, no matter which kind of clinician you are.
12: Thank you.
0: I think there was a question back here, so there was one that asked the last time. Was, I was gonna... yeah. was gonna... <laughs>
12: um, so we've talked a couple times, or you've talked a couple times, about how um, self-stigma is so debilitating but when it comes to other people around us that we're supporting with similar challenges, we're so um, gung-ho for supporting them and how, no, what you're going through is valid and um, all that support you give, but we can't do that for ourselves. I'm just wondering why, what you think is the reason why that happens and what you do to fight that um, the
4: most? I'll speak to that, Um, so as someone that, um, well the story that I shared today was supporting someone else, Um, for me it was just so much easier to see value in someone else and I think that's because um, the media, society and just like our conversations between each other, um, we don't really look and see how valuable we are. And um, something that I actually have learned through my advocacy journey and through supporting um, my partner was how loved I am. And I think for me, it was um, turning how much love I had for him through the experience and being like, oh, people love me like this too. Um, and that really, really helped, um, I think, my journey going forward.
8: I don't have much experience being a caregiver, but I would just like to say that it's always important to put yourself first, like they use the oxygen mask. Um, sometimes that's difficult when you believe that someone else's issues are so much more detrimental than your own, you get to put yourself on the back burner you say, I'll take care of me later because they come first, but there has to be a balance because before you know it, you're gonna be in crises too and if you keep ignoring it, nothing's gonna change. Um, and so it's okay to set boundaries. It's I've heard it's harder when you're a parent and it's your child going through it because it's not really a choice, it's that's, that's my baby, I need to take care of them. Um, but at the end of the day, you just gotta try and reach out and even if you can find one person to support you while you're supporting someone else, and then it's just that big chain of peer support and that's the idea, that's the hope, is that we can all have someone in our corner and we can be in someone else's corner to create that um, community of
11: change.
10: Uh, yeah so um, my question um before I ask like I understand that um, this isn't a very easy question to actually answer specifically but um, when it comes to a mental uh, illness um how much of it is something that um, that a person is uh, born with and how much of it is kind of environmentally induced and then I guess my follow-up question is is that when it comes to helping somebody who has a or when it comes uh, to somebody who has a mental uh, illness like um, how much of it can be kind of Treated so, like, I guess, like, um, let's say you have something and you're at a 10. I understand that may, that many times you can't bring it down to like a zero, but can you bring it down to like a three or four? Or, like, um, and like, I understand it varies from person to person, but um, how much of it can be treated, and how much of it and um, how is it developed, I guess, at the start?
7: Um, unfortunately, we're not clinicians, um, I think most of us. Wait, how many, j- how many of us are graduated so far? Yeah, okay. Um, so I'm not 100% sure about your first question, but I do believe that environment itself does play a big impact in mental health and mental wellness, because we do require support from our peers, from our friends, from our family, to sort of maintain our mental health. And when we do feel our mental health deteriorating, it is important to have friends and family in our corner, regardless of how much of it is biological or how much of it is environmentally caused, it's still important to have positivity within your environment and to have support within your whole system and community with you to help with your mental health.
5: Okay, going from the first part, um, so something I studied a lot in school is something called the diathesis stress model. So it's like you have a jar, and it's full with marbles, and the marbles are your genetics. so if you have a genetic predisposition to something like depression, you might have more marbles in the jar than somebody who has a less genetic predisposition, but then the environment you're in adds water into the jar, and so if you have more bad things happening, like adverse childhood experiences or a death of a loved one, you add more water to the jar, and the more marbles in, the less water is going to take for the water to f- flow over top of the jar, um, and that's like a breakdown or a mental health crisis, but the less you have, then the more water you can fit in before a mental health concern comes up, if that makes sense.
8: Um, Thank you, Cadence, for answering the question that the rest of us were very puzzled on. (laughs) Um, I'd like to speak to your comment about going from a 10 on the crisis scale and bringing it down to a three or four. With that, I would like to emphasize to everyone the importance of safety planning with your loved ones and safety planning with yourself. Um, When mental conditions are good, it's no use to safety plan in a crisis, but if your loved one is having a relatively okay day, at like even a five on the scale, um, it's good to sit down and say, if things get bad, if you're at a 10, what do I have your consent to help you with? Does a 10 for you look like going to the hospital Do you need me to advocate for you in the hospital? Does a 10 mean calling your therapist? Does a 10 mean we need to take the day off work and take care of ourselves at home and deal with that between us? Um, And then for yourself too, working with that person and being like this is when I'm in a clear state of mind, this is what I need. Setting those boundaries of even when I'm on a bad day, I need you to remember that I did consent to this. And even if I say I don't wanna go to the hospital, if I'm at a 10 and if I'm suicidal, I need you to take me. For me, part of my safety plan is trust whatever the hell my therapist says to do. (laughs) She knows me best, she knows how to deal with me, and so if I'm in crises, my mom can call her and be like, yeah, okay, this is our plan. But having a plan in place, because nothing is scarier than when a loved one all of a sudden reaches a 10 and you are scared and have no idea how to go for help.
12: Um... Uh, This might be a strange question, but in my experience um, there's been a big difference as far as boys and girls, men and women who will seek out help. Um, As boys, as males, um, the message we get is, you know, be tough and hide it and stuff like that. And even if we don't get that message, there's that unspoken, uh, you know, just be tough, hold it in. Um, Most of my clients are female and uh, what would you guys suggest to people who are are males who are undergoing or experiencing mental health issues or people who know of males that are doing that, how would you support them and
7: help them to be more willing to seek out help? Uh, I think just letting them know that how they feel is valid, and in some ways it is normal, or just as normal as it is for, I suppose, women to feel that way. Because I do agree that in society, men are often told to kind of contain their emotions and to not express them, but it's important to let family members or friends know that are male, that it's okay to not be okay, and it's okay to reach out and seek help. And that doesn't make them any less masculine or any less of a man to go and reach out and say, hey, I need help right now. I'm not doing okay. And um, yeah.
8: I'm not a male, so please don't take my perspective as though I am one. Um, but I think sometimes it's important to give statistics and to really present hard facts and saying that you're not alone. Um, suicide is the second top killer of men under 40 and that alone shows that there are so many males in our society who are not accessing the help they need due to stigma around toxic masculinity and those beliefs of toughen up, why can't you get through this, you need to be stronger, men shouldn't cry, boys shouldn't be weak, and it's ingrained. I've seen it in the work that I've done in schools that I've been in from young ages, like kindergarten, preschool. Um, girls get hurt on the playground. It's, oh, are you okay? Are you hurt? How can I help you? Boys get hurt, and it's stop crying. You're fine. And that stems all the way to adulthood, and that belief that you know you got to take care of it on your own. And I see that with a lot of the males in my life, and it's very sad to me because your sex doesn't make you any different when it comes to mental health. Mental health does not discriminate on age, race, gender, sexuality, you name it. Everyone can have a mental illness, everyone can have a mental health concern, and just creating that image of equity and ensuring that no matter what, whoever you're counseling, whoever you're seeing, knows that despite where they come from, despite who they are, they are worth care and they are worth attention.
6: There's
10: another question at the back. Oh, hey, I have one. Yeah, oh. Hi. Um, one of the things I was wondering is, you guys have done a really good job of kind of explaining what good, positive helping looks like. Uh, obviously there's that idea of nurturing, caring people as if we have somebody who's in our life that we reach out, we act kindly, we be those kinds of people. But I think sometimes there's another idea of well-intentioned ideas that go down the wrong area. and do the wrong thing, and I've been trying to think of a really good way to understand this and to voice it, but this is kind of the most I can think of. Um, It's the idea of get out, where you have the dad who's there, and he's like, oh, I would have voted for Obama for a third term. Like, There's this whole idea of trying and well-mannered and well-intentioned help, but what does... Have you ever experienced those things that have kind of turned out the wrong way, and how can we kind of see those... and dissect it to make sure that we aren't doing those as people who are trying to help.
8: I had an experience in the hospital, um, my last trip to emergency. I'm gonna try and crane my neck to see you. Um, And I was being spoken to by a psychiatrist and I was in crises, but I was 15 at the time and I was not stupid. And he explained to me that my mental health was simply a roller coaster and my suicidality was simply a roller coaster. And right now I was on the low point, and I just had to wait a little bit to reach the high point, and then everything would be fine. And I believe that he was trying to give me some hope that things wouldn't be bad forever. But what it came across was, your experiences aren't validated. We're not gonna take you serious right now. Um, we're gonna send you home because you're just your your roller coaster is gonna go up soon, don't worry. And I think that also kind of plays into What a lot of people say is, oh, well, so-and-so has it worse. And it's not that people don't have it worse, but what that sounds like is, you have no right to feel the way you do. And it's supposed to be a, well, look in perspective, like things could be worse for you. And it's like, sure they could, but I'm bad right now. I need you to validate that. And so, yeah, there's lots of experiences where the intention is there, but the delivery is horrible.
5: I think, um in the mental health system. I don't think it was built with bad intentions. I think it was just very misguided. And I think that's the same for a lot of caregivers or workers that are in the mental health system. But something that I think CASA is starting to do really well is that they are using the Family Advisory Council and they're using our Youth Council as a platform to check that their um, initiatives that they're doing are going to be helpful and not harmful. So like, even down to the posters that they put on the walls, they'll send it to our youth council and like, ask them, is this wording OK? Is the diagram OK? Is this going to make um, the rights of individuals understandable to you? So I think just asking people what they need, because they do know what they need, but instead of assuming, if that makes sense.
7: I find a a big thing is to just listen and ask appropriate questions as well. Because there's been times where someone in my family has asked me, like, how are you doing? And I say, really bad. I'm having another depressive episode. And they say, don't say that. Uh, you're, You're not. You're okay. And I think it's important to acknowledge sometimes that, like, it's okay to tell someone, like, yeah, you're not okay, but I'm still here for you. Um, And there's certain situations where it's important to just listen to what the person is saying and ask appropriate questions. Like saying, okay, is there anything I can do for you right now? Is there anything that I can do to help? Uh, Is there anything you need to talk about with me or do you just want me to be here with you? Because I find that often it's easy to kind of just say to someone like, no, you're okay, and pretend that that is enough for them. But instead, it's better to ask them, like, are you actually okay? And if not, what can I do to actually support you right
3: now?
4: Um, I'm just going to add one more thing. Um, So when I was going through my thing, I had friends that were great and supportive, and then I had friends that I lost because they were not. Um, And I think that the worst thing you can do when you're trying to help someone is minimize their experience and trivialize it like they're having a miserable day because they're having a hard time and dancing in the shower isn't going to cure their depression and it's definitely not going to make the psychosis go away. Um, So, back to what Caleb said, like active listening, real listening and showing up but making sure that you're not trivializing anyone's experiences while you're doing it.
3: (laughs) What is your opinion of the usage of labels for mental illness in the mental health advocacy community and in mental health support systems?
4: Uh, labels have a time and a place Um, for me after being a support um, I was later diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder because when someone almost dies you can develop PTSD and for me the label of PTSD was really helpful in explaining my symptoms to me and in allowing myself to give myself the energy in the space to ask for help and to receive help. But um, at the same time, uh, labels when they are misused or they're used without consent or permission, they can be quite damaging, as I think we've all experienced. Um, So really, yeah, there is a time and a place for them. Kind of building
8: off what Sasha said, um, it's really important to recognize that When someone has a diagnosis or a label attached to them as a person, it is attached to them and that is not who they are. You can use a diagnosis to say, oh well a loved one has depression and that explains why they couldn't get out of bed for two days and why they're not returning my text. But when you start to use that label as the only criteria you describe them as, is oh well so and so is depressed. You're taking away from them as a person. People are so much more than their labels it's effective to use labels in clinical settings and to understand one another and provide that empathy and peer support. But once you take it beyond that and start to associate a person only with their label on their diagnoses, that goes from helpful to harmful and can really dehumanize the individual you're speaking with.
3: I also, I also think that it can be really dangerous to throw uh, around labels, uh, just to throw them around and not from a very professional sense. Um, so I had an experience accessing care once um, at a counseling office and in my intake appointment, um, I was struggling, I was in crisis and I had mentioned that I was in crisis um, and she just said to me, you're just a busy university student, you've got a lot going on, you should probably try working out, you're probably just a little depressed, a little anxious, your is probably acting up and then she said, you should probably go next door to the um, like uh, the doctor's office uh, do this whole crying spiel again, they'll probably prescribe you some medication for it. So throw in that moment when you're in crisis, um, and you know, it takes a lot for me and I touched on self-stigma that you know, culturally to extend out and go for help, it's not always easy. But you know, to sort of hear these words of like, you're probably just depressed, you're probably just anxious, you're just a university student that's going through the same motions that everybody else is, go next door and do this crying thing and they'll probably prescribe you something. Um, it can be really damaging, and it can be really hard for someone to take it in. Now, I'm an advocate. I live and breathe this stuff. I study it both from the scientific perspective and from a personal level, and I was distraught. Now think of, I hate to say it, but the average person who might not be very much aware of what is happening or the extent of the mental illness or the mental health journey that they're on, what that does to them. So my message is to be careful with how we throw around these labels, whether from a professional or personal sense, as well. But thank you for your question. Anybody else? Hi,
12: sorry. Um, You've all spoken with uh, so much poise and grace um, tonight, so thank you very much. Um, The question I have is for the advocacy group. Um, 13 to 25 is a large span. And as a parent uh, to some complex kiddos, I'm wondering, If I brought them in at 13, 14, 15, what part would they play in the group? Do you feel that it's maybe too large a span or or can they be valuable members at their young ages?
3: Honestly, that's a very fair question and what we always do moving in anything we do is be cognizant of safety and making sure that everyone is safe and comfortable in being um, members of our council. Uh, it does sound like a huge age gap, but what we, we try to do is create a culture within our council where everyone feels like they can be a part of what we do. And we try to support each other in reaching that threshold. Um, so we have some people in our council, like for this event for today, who are not comfortable sitting up here in front of a microphone and in front of all these wonderful, great looking people. Um, and wanted to be more of the logistics sides, who created the slides, who dealt with the decor, who did a lot of other things for us. So we try to find roles for individuals within our council that meet what they're comfortable with. Um, Now, I'm gonna put the council on the spot as well. We do have some younger folks, some high school kids as well. Um, Maybe if you can touch on how the experience has been for you, if you're comfortable with, do you feel the age gap at all. I know I'm putting you on spot, Ella, but you're our social media co-chair. You can tweet it if you want. <laughs> but yeah, I can bring you a mic here.
9: Okay, um, yeah, go first. Okay, yeah, uh, so I'm in grade 12, so like, kind of on the younger side. And I'd say like, in the beginning, even if I was a bit intimidated um, to speak um, in front of all of these other people who'd been there for much longer than I had, I think um, just like going to my first meeting, just trying to listen and um, hearing about everyone else talking and then having, um, having my own opinion and like portraying that to the others and like having people listen to that and try to address it rather than just like ignore it or like kind of take it as less important because I didn't have as much experience was very validating for me and kind of like, I know I wouldn't have come back from that, like I wouldn't have come back to a second meeting if that hadn't happened, I know that for sure. So um, definitely having stayed for this long, that definitely the reason why is because everyone is so supportive.
2: Um, I joined the council when I was 15, so I, I felt pretty young. I was one of the youngest when I joined it. Um, and for me, I'm so, so grateful that I have all my fun university friends on it. Um, and I, it's really awesome and they make me feel so included and part of the conversation. Um, even when I don't know when they're talking about their Neurological Sciences class. (laughs) Um, But I think for me, I really wanna see young, like even younger people get involved and like my high school friends get involved because I think, like I said during my presentation earlier, um, it's important that people under 18 get involved too because you're never too young to start. And so it would be awesome if there could be younger people coming onto the council because I think it'd be just add more diversity with our ages and just create a more I don't know it just create a different conversation I think bringing in younger kids um, and younger youth because everybody's valid everybody's opinion is valid and everybody's view is valid and it doesn't matter what age you are
0: Okay, so I think that's all the time we have for questions. Is it, or did we have one more? That's one more.
11: Okay. I actually don't have a question. I have more of a statement that I'd like to say. So um, I'm a child and youth care counselor. I specialize in training mental health first aid. So I have a lot of experience working with youth and uh, trauma and mental health. And one of the things that I always say and one of the things that I always teach is that secrets keep us sick. Secrets keep us sick. And when we don't talk about what's going on, it perpetuates that fear that we are the only ones. It is not lost on me the courage that it takes for you to step out of the shadows and say, I'm not okay today. Um, I really, really, I'm in awe of the courage, the vulnerability, and the resiliency I see in front of me. So very, very well done. The stigma around mental health changes when individuals and advocates like you have, have that voice and, and make it okay to talk about mental health. So bravo to you. Thank you. Thank you.
0: Thank you everyone so much for your questions. I wish we had more time because I'm sure there's a lot to discuss still. Um, just So just to end off our lecture today, we'd like to acknowledge the following CYC members and our facilitator for their contributions towards this lecture. Our panelists shared some deeply personal stories, and through this dialogue do we hope to encourage others to feel more comfortable discussing and stimulating further conversation to increase awareness around the youth perspective and what that means for family members, friends, caregivers, health professionals, and educators of these youth. For those interested in speaking with our fa- panelists and have, uh, or if you have additional questions at the end of our session today, please feel free to come down to the stage. Also on your way out, please feel free to check out some of the tables that are located uh, just outside the theater, including our CYC table where you can get your copy of our very own Unseen Magazine and learn more about our council.
6: Thank you again everyone for coming today. We would really appreciate you taking the time to fill out the feedback form so we can hear your thoughts on today's session and we can improve future sessions to bring content that matters to you. Please drive safely and we hope to see you at the next Dr. Roger Bland lecture in the new year titled Winter Blues in Self-Care which will be held on January 21st. More information about upcoming sessions is available at the CAS website at casaservices.org slash lecture series. Now our CYC Facilitator Stephanie has a few words before we close off.
3: So I just wanted to take just a couple seconds to say thank you to the whole uh, Youth Council. They've worked really hard and I want to congratulate them on what they've achieved here. Um, it's been several months preparing and I think it really shone and really they really showed that you guys put a lot of effort in. Um, on behalf of CASA, I just have a couple gifts for our speakers and while I pass that off pass those around I will let uh, Rachel and Jasmine finish up
6: Well, all I have to say is we ask everyone to please exit the venue as quickly as possible We need to be out by 9 p.m. At the latest for the Telesport of Science staff Um And then with that, have a great evening, everyone, and thank you for attending.